there's still a very small amount of variation, which is ironically why at the United Nations, when we talk about autonomous vehicles, we, we don't talk about when we legalize them so much as we talk about when do we ban human drivers. Welcome to How AI Happens, a podcast where experts explain their work at the cutting edge of artificial intelligence. You'll hear from AI researchers, data scientists, and machine learning engineers as they get technical about the most exciting developments in their field and the challenges they're facing along the way. I'm your host, Rob Stevenson, and we're about to learn how AI happens. Here with me today on How AI Happens is an AI advisor to the United Nations and co-founder of the UN's AI for Good initiative, an IBM master inventor, author of the 2019 bestseller, Own the AI Revolution, Neil Sahota. Neil, welcome to the show. How are you today? Yeah, hey, I'm doing awesome. How are you doing, Rob? Doing really well. Thanks for asking. No one ever asks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just podcasting my heart out and really lucky to be chatting with you, honestly. You have such an interesting, rich background. And my audience may know you from a few places, not the least of which is Mike Tyson's podcast, Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson, <laughs> which I listened to in preparation for this. And I got to say, Mike Tyson asked a really insightful question. It was something to the effect of, how would an AI know if a punch's intent was good or bad? <laughs> and I was like, does Mike Tyson does Mike Tyson know how good of a question that is? <laughs> Can you just kind of repeat your answer to that question? Because it was so interesting to me that it was like, you know what? There's like implications for sentiment analysis and just like the potential for technology to be misused, all of that in, in, wrapped up in that question, right? I mean, there is, right? We as human beings have to make really rapid judgment calls, especially in sports, but there's still thousands of data points in play that we can only, you know, the best of us can see 7 to 12 in real time. I mean, you can look at the body language, the glint in the eye, even the motion of the punch, the little subtle, you know, facial expressions, you know, there's over 2,000 points in our face that kind of reveal intent. All these things snap together for AI real easily in real time to say like, huh, was that well-meaning or an accident or malicious? That's really the power. Yeah, it really just is another example of it sounds like very basic to say, but how advanced human cognition is where like for, like the example you often hear is how easy it is for you or I to say, oh, that's a dog and that's a cat. But then when you start trying to teach an AI to do it, it's like, okay, well, a dog has a tail. Yes, so does a cat. A dog has pointy ears. Yeah, so does a cat. Like a, a dog has a snout. So does a lion. Is a lion, like a lion's a cat, right? It just like starts to fall apart the closer you look at it. Thus the challenge. Thus the podcast we have here today. <laughs> Puppies okay. are muffins, right? Wasn't that the... Uh... Oh, website. yeah, it was, exactly. It was like a pugs or blueberry muffins. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that's a classic. Neil, I guess, can we start a little bit just with your background and kind of how you wound up in your current role or I guess slate of roles more accurately? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, put it simply, Rob, I've just always been the guy that took the path of most resistance. Very big about, you know, learning, problem solving, trying to do something different or as we call it innovative, disruptive, I guess. And so I was always the guy that took the hard classes, was trying to solve the hard problems. And, you know, I went up in the consulting world, working with several global Fortune 500 companies. And I just remember, man, I know I'm dating myself here, but, you know, 16, 17 years ago when business intelligence started taking off and 
and working with all these big guys like you know Warren Buffett, Michael Eisner, and they're like, man, it's it's amazing what computers are telling us. I'm like, they're not really telling us anything. We got these sweet tools that we can now collect and store tons of data. You know, people can slice and dice it, make nice looking reports, but machines are, really aren't telling us anything. But could they? That took me down this path of, well, I was calling it enterprise intelligence at the time, but now we actually know it is artificial intelligence. And that got me a call from IBM R&D one day about some of my, my work. And uh, next thing I know, they're asking if I wanted to join a secret project back then called Watson. That was my, my real foray into AI. What do you think was the tipping point when people were saying, oh, it's so fascinating what computers can tell us? And you're like, is it though? Not yet, right? Was it the internet? Was it an increase in processing power? Where do you think computers sort of advanced past glorified calculators? <laughs> it was when we started collecting data, right? That's the fuel for AI. People have been trying to do AI, well, probably really since the 50s. And everyone's like, why are we suddenly in this wave now? And I think it's we never really had the data before. We have literally the power to collect everything and everything. And some people actually do that. Right. Where did the data come from when you were building Watson? Because we were focused on the Jeopardy challenge. Jeopardy actually makes a database of like questions and things like that available to practice. So we actually had a starting point there. We had the old shows, so we could actually take transcripts and things like that. So we, we were actually able to build a really robust database to train Watson. The, ironically, the hard part was not so much all the possible topics and all these types of things, but it was more around the strategy of the game, right? Because you're not just playing the answer to questions, you're playing against the other opponents, you're going to with the daily doubles, and then the natural language processing that's involved. Because you think about the exception questions like, you know, which of the fall, you know, which of the following is not, or, you know, they're phrasing things awkwardly because we as humans don't talk proper English. Yeah. Or the whole concept that here's a game show where they give you the answer and you have to figure out the question. So it was really the strategy in the NLP that was the big challenge. And some of the categories are also wordplay, like the clue is wordplay and the answer is a pun, right? That happens sometimes. That's rather intuitive to someone, to a human being. I like that you brought up how it's less about getting the answer right, because you assume the people on Jeopardy, particularly the two players Watson was playing against, right? Two of the best of all time. They know the answer to every question, right? And so it's more about how you bet, do you find the daily doubles and do you buzz in first? Was that the advantage Watson had? Was that like Watson will always be able to buzz in faster than a human player? Well, a lot of people wonder if that was the case. And there was a bit of a time delay. So like when Alex Trebek was reading the question, you know, Watson wasn't set up with audio and by somebody designed there. So that when Alex finished the question, the thing got texted to Watson to try and balance out the buzzing timing. Oh, interesting. So there was no, right, because it's actually a visual cue, I gather. It's like, there's like a light that goes on or off at the end of the question that that's when you can buzz in, I think. And at the time, you didn't have computer vision on top of the podium. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. And Watson wasn't that little box you saw on TV either. <laughs> yeah, that was a prop, right? That was a prop. It's like, here's HAL 9000 <laughs> playing Jeopardy. Yeah. <laughs> also, an interesting thing about that Jeopardy game was that Watson got it right a lot, 
But what was funny was when Watson got it wrong, it was like way off, right? Like when a human player gets it wrong, it's like, okay, I could kind of see how you might say that. What do you think was responsible for that kind of deviation? Honestly, part of it was we didn't anticipate some of these things. And we realized that we probably could have done the training a little bit more robustly. Like there was one question about, you know, this U.S. airport was named after, you know, a famous, uh, I think it was World War II veteran. And Watson, you know, buzzed in with Toronto Pearson Airport. And we're like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it didn't factor the geographic <laughs> information in. And there was another time when I think it was Brad buzzed in, answered incorrectly. And then Watson buzzed in and gave the same exact answer. And we're like, oh, yeah, we probably should have factored that, that in as well. <laughs> That is funny because that's like a very standard sort of like software shipping problem. It's like, oh, once people started using this, we realized, oh, that's obvious. We should just like not repeat the same answer or, oh, like, yeah, fat, like Toronto is not going to be the answer for the American World War II vet question. But yeah, like, like I don't know. Some of these things are impossible or not impossible, just unlikely to predict. You have to see something in the real world, see something deployed in production before you understand the problem. That's That's not unique to Watson, I don't think. No, but I think that's that's the challenge we have with training AI and that we're looking to do a specific outcome. We're trying to think of some exception paths. There's just such a myriad, a myriad set of paths and funky things that happen in the real world that we just didn't account for because we think like, well, either we didn't think of it or it just happened so infrequently it's not worth bothering about. But like that whole thing, like Watson repeating the wrong answer is like, oh my God, that was such a dunderhead move on our part. I can't believe we didn't think of that. Yeah. It's it's a little bit of a facepalm. I'm imagining you watching it like, oh, come on, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> it's related to an interesting, I think, evergreen question about AI deployment, which is when do you know you're ready to move from training into production? And I think one good answer is it depends on the stakes of your technology, right? Like the stakes of being wrong in an autonomous vehicle are a lot higher than the stakes of being wrong in the content recommendation engine on Netflix or something. That's one example. Where do you kind of stand on that? How do you know when it's ready to, when you like, you're close enough, you're good enough to move into to shipping something? It's exactly, you actually, like you talked about it, Rob, it has to do with confidence level. So as we, you know, we go through the training and like with Watson and our AI stuff I've worked on, we're always kind of gauging the not just level of accuracy, but the confidence the AI system has in its its answers or its recommendations. You know, Netflix, if it's 80% good, 80% confident, that's probably all right. The worst thing that's going to happen, it's going to make a poor recommendation, but it can learn from that. But like the stuff we were doing in healthcare, we were trying to get to 95, 98% confidence level just because we're, we're talking about a human life. A mistake could mean someone dies. And, you know, a lot of people always said, like, why didn't you try to get to 100%? That's not possible. They're like, well, why not 99.9%? It's like you, you start reaching a point of diminishing returns or just re reach a point where there's just not enough data available to do that level of training. So some of this is just going to be the machine having to learn through experience and it doesn't mean that, you know, Watson or some other AI system has the end-all, be-all say. That's why we still have the human doctors. They're really the decision makers. We're just trying to give as good of a tool set as possible for them and, like, nurses and other practitioners to use. It's interesting that to get to 99% 
you mentioned there's not enough data available, but then the idea is that, okay, it needs to get real world experience and then learn from that. But that's the data too. That's the missing data, right? So how much can synthetic data bridge that gap between the data available versus what you know you might need to go from 95 to 99? It depends on what we're doing. So synthetic data can be a good bridge if we're like in a very closed ecosystem or we're looking at some things that we know or understand fairly precisely. So like synthetic data has been a great boon in uh, training AI to detect like financial fraud or money laundering because just the amount of variabilities and other factors that go into those transactions is very limited. And to be honest, we all hope the banks don't have a, a whole lot of data on that front. That that would mean a lot of bad things. But you look at other areas of life where things, you know, they don't mesh so cleanly that there's a lot of subtle or hidden factors that we may not even be aware of that are actually coming into play. You know, for example, bees. You know, we were, there was a lot of concern about, you know, the bee population dying off and, you know, they make more than honey. They, they do a lot of interaction in the environment. And, you know, some people were saying like, well, hey, we can create drone bees. We can train them to you know, help spread the pollen, a couple other things, and we can manufacture honey artificially. That's not an issue. But we're all sitting here going like, Okay, yeah, we could do that, but bees probably do like a hundred things, and we're only aware of like twelve of them. So even if we want to try and create synthetic data about bee behavior, there's so much we actually don't understand about bees and their influence. That's going to be tough, and that's I think that's the challenge that we have. Synthetic data is going to work really well in some cases, but in other cases where we just don't have the the more complete picture. Um, we're going to miss things. Yeah, it's a case of you don't know what you don't know. And I think particularly with natural phenomena, it's good to be humble, right? And, and re remember your place in an extremely delicate, advanced ecosystem that like on the time scale of humanity, we're just beginning to learn about. It's true. And, you know, I hate to say this, at the end of the day, we as people still train the AI systems. And so they're dependent on us, thankfully, <laughs> to do that, but we can only teach them things that we're able to commoditize, things that we hopefully fully understand. And I think we all know about the challenges with like implicit bias and that filtering through, but there are other things that we don't get. There's this you know, whole movement towards like medium data now that we don't really need big data, we need medium data, but medium data is dependent on understanding what is the right data. And you think about like learning language like we know for uh, an AI system, if it gets exposed to about 100 million words, it becomes proficient and fluent in the language. But you think about a human child, it only needs uh, about 30 million words. So it's not the volume that matters. There's certain words or phrases that trigger the cognitive learning for language. The problem is we just don't understand what that is. And when we were all first learning our, our languages – we didn't have the vocabulary to even explain how we were learning. And so we're kind of this weird thing is like, what is really the right data now? What are the right triggers for that machine learning to take effect? Yeah, you can even go one step further with language. If you learn like the most common 2,500 words in a language, like that's enough. <laughs> Typically, you know, you won't be fluent. You can't go read that country's poet laureate probably, but you can get around. Like you can be respectful in a language. 
So that's interesting, the shift from big to medium data. The tendency would probably be like, oh, it's more efficient, it's less processing power, but you still have to you still have to downsize. You still have to know enough to be able to know what's not relevant, right? Oh, 100%. And that's our challenge is that we think we understand how some things work or how we learn. And there are just cases where we really don't. It works because it works. And that's kind of how it is. I hate to put it that way, like language. But that's the challenge that we face. So, you know, it's like Elon Musk and the Neuralink and can we, you know, put a chip in our brains and can AI decode our brain waves and download. We don't really understand how the brain works that well, right? We're so far off from being able to do something like that. I'm not saying that these are not challenges that we can overcome, but these are things that we have to understand when we try and do AI. We can build systems that work really well with things that we re- understand very well. That's the big constraint that we have. So what are the domains we know well and what are the ones we don't? Where are we with all this? I think things that are more hard science or things that have the least amount of variability is probably the best way to put it, are the best things for AI systems. So you think about like autonomous vehicles, traffic laws are pretty set in stone. Even if we as humans don't quite follow all the rules, but there's guidelines, traffic lights, the signs, all these things. There's obviously the variability with, you know, bicyclists, people, or crazy human drivers. But it's more of a known quantity, right? There's still a, a, call it a very small amount of variation, which is ironically why at the United Nations, when we talk about autonomous vehicles, we, we don't talk about when we legalize them so much as we talk about when do we ban human drivers, because that would actually strip a lot of variability out of the system. So those are great places where it's very limited variability for AI. The flip side, obviously, is where there's a lot of variability or things that I'll call it kind of the human factor that consciously or subconsciously we're not aware of. You know, I'll pick on the UN again because, you know, they're very big on AI robot justices or judges. We actually have enough data to do that. The problem is, as we were researching this and thinking about all the bias and how we balance that out or strip it out, we learned something incredible in that the biggest influencer on how a judge makes decisions is how hungry they are. <laughs> Think about that, Rob. The more hungry oh they get, the more harsh they get. How do you account for that now when you're developing an AI system? You give your AI a peanut butter sandwich before you make a decision. It's easy. <laughs> Next. <laughs> so, you know, we thought, like, could we timestamp some of this? Can we figure out a hunger factor, but it's like, there's no way to know if this day the judge had breakfast or maybe they skipped lunch and they were even worse in the afternoon. It's too much variability. Yeah. Variability is an interesting way to anchor it. I'm curious to hear you speak a little bit more about the UN's AI for Good initiative. We've spoken a decent amount about some of the ethical considerations in AI here on this show the greatest hits of which will be familiar to folks, right? The potential for bias, like should we automate as many jobs as possible, et cetera. Are these the things that the AI for Good initiative is focused on or what is the thrift of their work? Some of those are. So the AI for Good initiative, it revolves around the 17 sustainable development goals, the SDGs. So for people who may not be familiar, I won't rattle all 17 off, but it's things <laughs> like 
zero hunger, access to justice, good health, smart cities, you know, all these things. And these are goals the member nations have, have agreed to and said we really want to try and accomplish by 2030. It's just that while the good intentions are there, the commitment to resources is a bit lacking. And what we've seen is that technology, particularly AI, is a good way to bridge a lot of that gap. And so there, we've literally completed hundreds of projects in the last, was it, four and a half years. And we have like 117 active projects going on right now. But it's all across these 17 development goals, and it's on a global level. And one of the things I've been a big believer of, and we've seen this materialize, is that local problems have global solutions. While we're worrying about job automation, you know, in the United States, they're worrying about something very similar in parts of Asia, Africa, Europe, and what are the skills we should be teaching for the future of work, and food production, food security is an issue in a lot of places. So people that really feel the pain tend to be the best innovators. And so if we can arm them with the right tools, equipment, money, help, these kinds of things, we can actually solve some of the big problems in the world. And that's really the goal here is can we tap AI to be part of this solution driving? When you think about arming these populations, does that mean, you know, mobile SDK, right? Like edge computing. How do you bring really advanced technology to remote areas of the world? It's all about partnerships to a degree. So a lot of the big companies have, you know, joined as partners in the AI for Good ecosystem and they're making their APIs, their computing power, all these cloud services, all these things available for people to use. You have lots of people volunteering to be mentors, doing educational programs. We have in the United Nations actually an initiative called Global Connectivity, which is number two for Secretary General after climate change, where we're working with the member nations to actually build out the infrastructure to even support some of these things, like access to high-speed internet, access to mobile devices. So it's a big, big challenge, obviously, to get all the remote places and some of even the not remote places kind of on par, but it's something that we absolutely have to do. There's just no way around it because we've already seen it that like that child that gets a tablet at two years old or has access to a tablet at two years old, their cognitive skills and the way they think about how they can apply technology to solve problems far outstrips that kid that gets the tablet when they're eight. Interesting. Can you give yeah, an example? It's... Like, what does that look like? Can you? I'd love to know some of the disruption coming out of the two-year-olds these days. It's funny because, you know, we were visiting a very good friend of mine, and they have a two-year-old son. And, you know, you're saying, like, hey, Uncle Neil, I hurt my my finger. Like, really? Which finger? And he holds it up. He's like, my iPad finger, you know? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's not like, you know, your index finger anymore. It's like, it's my iPad finger. I'm like... Wow. <laughs> That's a new perspective on life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's easy to go dystopian with that. But the truth is like that two-year-old is beholden to the technological development process that resulted in that iPad as another two-year-old is to a process that made a book, right? Like it's, that's, that's all out of reach, even to myself, right? Like I, I wouldn't know how to, to make and print and bind a book, let alone an iPad. No, but this is the challenge that we're facing in that the future of work is around hybrid intelligence. It's basically, you know, the ability to augment human capabilities with machine capabilities and understanding how to do that, well, means understanding the 
you know, what the tool set and what the capabilities of emerging technology are. And we just seen the children get exposed to that at a younger age, as young as, as possible, essentially, unleashes that potential, right? They're more adept to realizing how they can augment things that they do with technology. And, well, that's why the kids that don't have access to this stuff earlier are going to suffer later in life when it comes to where future work is taking us. I mean, it's going to be more about creativity, problem solving, totally new applications of technology, and they're just going to be behind the curve. And that's the great fear that a lot of us have is we may be leaving whole swaths of people behind. Just by not arming them with this technology at a young age. Yeah. I mean, think about how fundamental things are. I liken it now to like, it's like starting to teach a child how to read when they're four versus when they're 10. Yeah. And when you bring up hybrid intelligence, how integrated are we talking here, right? I, I think the, the human in the loop viewpoint, the idea of that AI is going to help you be better at your job, not take your job. We already are, you know, surrounded by tools. How much more integrated are you talking here? Honestly, I don't believe in the Terminator future, Rob. I believe in the cyborg future. That we as humans are going to try and evolve ourselves by adapting, you know, technology into ourselves. It's going to be human machine integration. I know people might, some people might be freaked out by that, but we're already kind of in that direction where, you know, we're already using AI and, you know, the brain can still send signals to the, like, you know, a stump, like if you're missing a limb. We're not trying to code your brain waves, but it, that triggers a process in your body. And so using AI and IoT, we can actually capture muscle and tendon motion. AI has been able to decode what that stuff means and, like, move a robotic hand. You know, they've already got the experimental surgery, which has been, I think, done a dozen times now, where they can actually implant digital cameras into a blind person's eyes and transmit the signal to the brain. It's it's still black and white and a bit grainy, but we know that technology will improve. So I can envision a future where human beings will be like, well, we all should have that because maybe we want to see infrared. Maybe we want to see the images or the X-ray world or whatever. So I, I know that's more far-flung and more for future, but in the short term, we want AI to take some of the repetitious, tedious admin type of work off our plates so we can actually focus on the more value-add, more complex work out there. That's, that's the way we really advance you know, ourselves and advance our different fields. So this is really where AI can really complement us. You know, and let's be honest, Rob, I know I'm going out there with a Black Mirror reference, but if you ever saw the episode White Christmas, you know, they take your brain engrams and create that cookie, which was your AI like assistant. It knows you as well as yourself because it kind of is you and can anticipate your needs and stuff. That That's like the holy grail. I think most of us be like, I totally want that. I'll never forget my anniversary again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's cloning yourself as your personal assistant is what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, and it's well pointed out that this hybrid nature is already here in a lot of ways. It's just not as like sci-fi as people think when they hear that, right? Like if you have a hearing aid, you know, if you have a, a hip replacement, the uh, animatronic limb, and that's probably not the right term for it, are all examples of this. We expect it to improve. We expect it to become more integrated. We expect it to be more advanced. That's just technology. And in another way, it's evolution, right? Like evolution as a life form that grew through us, it feels inevitable at this point. 
I agree. And I think that's the thing that, right, we all wish we could crunch numbers better and process all these data points better and anticipate better. And AI is a way to actually help us be able to do that. That's the key thing. This isn't about human versus machine. This is about humans leveraging machines. And we have to just always keep that in mind. Yep. Yep. Got it. Well, Neil, we are creeping up on optimal podcast length here. I don't want to let you go just yet, though. I would love to hear from you what you're really excited about in this space, because you have a bunch of different irons in the fire. I feel like you have your finger on the pulse in a lot of ways in in various different use cases and applications of this tech. What is something that really inspires and excites you when you think of a potential application for this tech or a deployment of it? Maybe a company in the space is doing really interesting work. What inspires you and lights you up when you think of where this tech is and where it's going? So that's a great question, Rob, because there's so much stuff going on. The, if I had to pick one, it's really about how we're using AI now to augment human creativity. So you got organizations like ACSI Labs, where they're combining neuroscience, AI, and the metaverse to actually, you know, tap into this whole digital twin thing, but give us a a safe space to unleash our creativity, to try the more risky ideas and see how they pan out. And with the AI able to, you know, generate random events and generate ever increasing levels of complexity and challenge, it really forces us to, you know, up our game in problem solving. And what I've seen is that it really is making us not just better thinkers, but it's unleashing more innovative solutions. This started with the digital farms like agriculture, and it's morphed to like business problem solving. But like right now, we're actually working on something right now where we actually think sustainable mining can be a reality. And it's all, it's all thanks to the combination of, you know, especially AI helping us to up our game when it comes to creativity. So that's what's got me jazzed right now. I love it. The future is awesome and it's coming faster than anyone anticipated. Neil, this has been a blast chatting with you. Thank you so much for being here with me and sharing all of your experience and all of your hot takes on the space. I really love learning from you today. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for having me on, man. I had a blast. How AI Happens is brought to you by Sama. Sama provides accurate data for ambitious AI, specializing in image, video, and sensor data annotation and validation for machine learning algorithms in industries such as transportation, retail, e-commerce, media, medtech, robotics, and agriculture. For more information, head to Sama.com.